welcome to the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Safe podcast. I'm your host, Darla Simpson, coming to you from beautiful North Vancouver, British Columbia, on the traditional lands of the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We're swapping spots again today, as I'll be sitting in the guest chair, and Dami Dabiri has rejoined us from SES Consulting, and he'll be taking on the hosting duties. Welcome, Dami. Thank you, Darla. I, I have to say, I'm, I'm quite happy to be in the hosting spot again. I feel like I'm finally getting the hang of these. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. So today, we're going to be looking at energy efficiency through a bit of a different lens. Throughout the series, it's come up a number of times how important it is to work with residents, how important it is to learn from their experiences, learn what's working and what's not, and to support them in adopting energy efficiency habits be that good maintenance practices for their homes or everyday behaviors that can help them reduce energy use. Today, we're really going to focus more directly on working with residents. We're going to be looking at those energy saving habits as well as how can we work with residents to get the message out and to help them practice those good habits. Before we get into all the specific energy conservation behaviors, how much can residents really impact their home energy use? So residents can have a fairly significant impact on, on energy use in their homes. In one multi-unit residential building study, where they were basically comparing identical units, um, one unit used as much as 10 times more than another unit. And that was just based on occupancy patterns and habits. So depending on how we're using our home, what we're doing in our homes, how often we're home, that can have a pretty big impact on, on our energy use when compared with our neighbors. So the International Energy Association, they cite six factors that influence energy efficiency at home. And these are kind of the big buckets that we would look at to to help address energy efficiency or or bring down energy costs. So many of them we've already talked about in the technical series. So there's the climate that your home is in. There's the building envelope and the equipment, HVAC equipment, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, that sort of thing. We've touched a fair bit on operations and maintenance. So that's another big factor. And then the last two that we're going to talk about a fair bit today are what they call indoor conditions and occupants. So indoor conditions are what kinds of consumer grade equipment do you have in your house? Do you have servers? Maybe you're a big gamer, you've got some big computer servers, those give off a lot of heat. Do you keep the doors closed all the time so your ventilation is really trying to work to get air circulating through your home? That sort of thing. And then the occupants themselves, do you leave lights on? Do you stand in front of the fridge with the door open. Um, <laughs> those sorts of you know habits that we've all developed, right? And so, of course, the more efficient our building envelope and HVAC systems are, the larger the portion of our energy use is impacted by how humans, how people in the space are using that space. So, as I said, it can be a pretty significant impact. And in my experience, anywhere in the range from 10 to 30% of your average home's energy use. That's really profound. And the example that drives it home is the fact that one unit can use more than 10 times another unit just by same size, same typical kind of equipment in both apartments, but just by occupancy behavior, you have a factor of of 10. That's mind blowing. And when you think about it, a family of four living in the same footprint as a single person right there, you're going to have four times the impact. Absolutely. And then if, if they're if they really have really inefficient habits, then that's how you that's how things get out of, out of hand pretty quickly. I know we've touched on this before, but can you remind us what does an energy use profile look like in an average BC home? Where roughly is the energy being used? Yeah, so we've we've definitely touched on this a few times and, and as we've said before, that average 
home can be a bit misleading. So we have such a variable climate in BC that home energy use in you know southern Vancouver Island looks very different than Vanderhoof. So you just don't need as much energy for heating. It's just a very different profile. But if we if we look kind of globally at the province, um, heating accounts for about half a home's energy use, and then hot water is about 25%. So anytime we're changing the temperature of something, that's really energy intensive. So together, heating and hot water, that's about 75% of an average home's energy use. And then the next piece is appliances and electronics. They're about 18%. And this is the one category that's actually been growing. While most of the categories have been shrinking in the total energy consumption, appliances and electronics have been growing just because we have more of them. So even as they become more efficient, uh, just the fact that we have so many computers and tablets and all that sort of stuff, that, that piece is growing. And then there's the added draw of phantom power, which, you know, especially um, electronic equipment draws. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, I believe. And then the last category is lighting. And so lighting used to be a fairly big component, but as I said, you know, it's become more and more efficient. So with the switch to LED lighting, we're seeing this drop even further. So it's, it's really uh, about 5%. It's a tiny amount of our, of our total home energy use at this point. And then you may have some other pieces in there, like a, a small cooling load if you're in a, in a particularly hot part of the province or uh, things like that that might be more variable based on your climate. You mentioned phantom power. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about that? What exactly do you mean when you say phantom power? So phantom power is, uh, you might also hear it called vampire power. It's kind of an exciting name. But uh, basically, it's the energy that our devices are consuming, especially our electronic devices are consuming when they're not doing useful work. So for example, that little blinky clock on your microwave, you don't have to be using your microwave, and it's still drawing electricity to power that little LED clock. So that's a tiny amount. But something like your laptop, a lot of us have gotten into the habit of putting our laptops into sleep mode, for example. Well, in sleep mode, your laptop is still drawing power continuously. Up to 40 or 50% of your total power consumption compared to when you're actually working. Because it's, you know, checking your mail every five minutes to see if there's any updates. It's depending on the number of active programs you have when you put your computer to sleep, they're still running in the background. So your laptops or your desktop computers can actually be drawing a significant amount of energy even when you're not using them. So when we talk about vampire power or phantom power, there's kind of three things that you want to look at. Anything with an adapter. Adapters themselves are going to draw a small amount of power. Anything with a brain or internet connectivity. And then anything with a clock is going to have a small draw. So that's kind of the ABCs of phantom power. And they can account for as much as 20% of your energy bill. So it's pretty significant. And across North America, they estimate that phantom power is about 5% of total electrical consumption. So it's, it's pretty significant across, the, across North America, even though it's really a tiny amount compared to our overall electricity use. Okay, so I can definitely see the potential. I am wondering, though, if there's an opportunity to influence resident behavior, where, where exactly should we focus our efforts? What would you say are the high-impact opportunities? Right, so there are two factors or two things that residents really control. There's the technologies that they purchase, so electronic equipment, that sort of thing, and then there's use patterns, so how we're using that equipment in our home. And so... When we look at 
helping residents to reduce their energy use, we can really break that down into four different categories of, of activities or behaviors. So there's one-time actions, which are things like purchasing a new computer. For example, you can purchase an energy efficient computer. You do it once, you save all that energy for the six years, hopefully, that your computer lasts. Um, the next one is setting defaults. So this is really using the programming settings on a lot of our appliances to set them into the energy efficient mode. Then there's maintenance best practices. And in First Nations housing, these maintenance practices might be shared between the, you know, the folks that are responsible for the housing. So they're doing the big maintenance bits. And then, you know, little things like cleaning your, your furnace filter or just kind of touch-up maintenance by, might be the responsibility of the residents. And then finally, the the most difficult thing to shift are those everyday habits, those those little behaviors that we get into that are maybe not so energy efficient. And I will say that both BC Hydro and Fortis BC have some really good resources on their website um, with energy saving tips and even DIY maintenance resources for things like replacing the seal on your fridge. Something that you don't think about very often, but when the seal on your fridge goes, it is wasting a fair bit of energy. Really simple thing to check and a really simple thing to fix. So. Do, do visit uh, those Fortis BC or BC Hydro websites and, and you can find that information. And again, remembering that heating and hot water are the biggest energy users in your home. So anytime you're focusing on behaviors or activities that reduce the heating and hot water impacts in our home, those are gonna be the, the biggest impacts in terms of our energy bills. Um, but sometimes those aren't the easiest actions to take. So we wanna kind of match what the residents feel they can do and, and what are going to be impactful behaviors. Okay, so I, I bet there's, there are probably more than a few people listening right now that are saying, ooh, that all sounds good. I have to start taking action right now. What would you say are some good examples of one-time actions that people can just implement right away? High up on the priority list, those one-time actions. So that includes things like purchasing Energy Star appliances. So again, this might be a mix of the responsibility of your housing department and residents, so purchasing Energy Star appliances and purchasing the most efficient equipment that you can afford that realistically works for you, uh, switching from CFL or halogen bulbs to LEDs, even things like replacing windows. If residents own the home, that's a, a big one-time equipment purchase that has a really significant impact on energy efficiency. So anytime you're working with your residents to make good choices, especially those big one-time choices, that's a really impactful way to influence energy use. And then there's smaller items that you can focus on as well. So things like getting rid of old TVs or desktop computers, unplugging or getting rid of the second fridge or freezer. We see this a lot where people have, you know, they replace their fridge and they're like, oh, I don't really want to, that, you know, that could be useful. So the second fridge goes into the garage or into the basement, it gets plugged in, it's running all the time, but it's empty. So getting rid of those uh, extra appliances, that can be a really impactful one-time action. And then things like installing water-saving shower heads or aerators, things that are done uh, through the ECAP program, which we're going to talk about a little bit later as well. Those can be really impactful. And the great thing is it's one and done. So you only have to do it once and then you can forget about it until you have to replace that piece. That Yeah, that absolutely makes sense because, yeah, those one-time action items are usually, like you said, they are usually the, the big energy guzzlers in the home too, so... When you get that chance once every 10, 15 years, you want to make you want to make it the right choice. In addition to one time actions, you also mentioned defaults. Can you tell us a bit more about what defaults are? 
Yeah, so defaults are just setting up your uh, equipment so that you're using the most energy efficient version of it. For example, installing programmable thermostats. You want those thermostats to be, you know, somewhere around 21 degrees when the space is occupied and then 18 when it's unoccupied or overnight. So those are good default settings to have, say, before renters move into a new home. Set those default settings and then they can change them if they want to, but at least you know that the house is, is set to energy efficient temperatures most of the time. Uh, same goes for your fridge thermostat. So you want your fridge set somewhere between 1 and 4 degrees Celsius and then your freezer at minus 15 to minus 18 degrees Celsius. And sometimes we crank those up to kind of compensate maybe for a leaky seal on the door or those temperature settings can drift sometimes. So uh, going in and double checking some of those defaults from time to time. Another really big one is setting the, the default on your washing machine to cold water wash. So this can be really important if you have say a multifamily building and a laundry with multiple washers set it to cold water default, you're gonna save all that energy, but it preserves the option for residents to put it on hot or warm if a hot or a cold wash is necessary. Same with the dishwasher, so setting that to eco wash, not the pots and pans version. So you get the 35 minute runtime instead of the two hour runtime. And again, the important idea is that homeowners still have the autonomy to choose, but if they aren't thinking about it or they forget, they'll get the energy efficient version. You also had maintenance on your list. Throughout this podcast series, we've talked a lot about maintenance, both for the equipment and for the building itself. I think this can be a bit of a gray area. I mean, where does the responsibility of the housing department start and where does the responsibility of the resident start? Yeah, I think that's a really important consideration. And I think when it comes to maintenance procedures, one of the most important things you can do is be really clear with residents what your housing department is going to manage in terms of maintenance and then what residents are responsible for themselves. And making sure that residents know how to report issues if they do come up so that they're not just persisting in the background and wasting energy or, or maybe causing other issues that, that might be more uh, complex to fix later on. But from a resident's perspective, some of the maintenance best practices that they want to be thinking about are every fall reducing drafts. So weather stripping, caulking around windows uh, that don't move, door bumpers, if, if that's appropriate, if they're getting cold drafts, for example. I mentioned earlier maintaining fridge and freezer gaskets, and this is a really simple one. You can test whether or not your gasket needs replacing just with a piece of paper. Slide it in between the fridge door and the fridge, and if you can pull that piece of paper out, it means your gasket isn't sealing properly and it needs to be replaced. So super easy thing to test. Replacing the gasket's a little bit more involved, but again, it's, it's something that a homeowner you know, can do on their own. They don't need to call in a handyman to do that, for example. Um, and then things like testing that the temperature in your fridge or the temperature in your freezer is actually achieving the temperature settings it's meant to. We mentioned installing those water-saving shower heads and aerators. The fireplace, this is a big one. A lot of people accidentally leave the fireplace damper open after they have a fire, so Something as simple as putting a little label there, <laughs> making sure they know when it's closed and when it's open, and just maintaining that every once in a while, having it clean so that it is closing properly and not getting stuck open or stuck partially open, and then you get a cold draft into your home. And again, many of these maintenance tips you can find on those lists from BC Hydro or Ford SBC, but you know, things like fixing dripping taps, especially if it's a hot water dripping tap, that should be fixed fairly quickly. Uh, and then the other big one I would say is replacing and cleaning filters regularly. So your furnace filter, if you've got a heat recovery ventilation filter, if you've got a heat pump filter, those should all be cleaned. Uh, if not twice a year, four times a year following your manufacturer guidelines. 
I feel like on the list that had the one-time action and maintenance and defaults was also habits. And I feel like you left it for last because let's face it, habits are not easy to change. What should we be thinking about when we ask residents to adopt energy efficiency habits? Yeah, habits are definitely the more difficult thing to shift. Um, and it's it's really important to remember that habits are adaptive. They're They're a good thing. So if we had to think about and weigh every decision we made in a day, we, we would be exhausted. It would be paralyzing. So there are good habits and there are bad habits and, and changing habits is hard in general. You know, some of the good habits that I think people are really familiar with, turning off lights, using natural light, using task lighting, taking shorter showers, you know, little habits like that. They're small, but they are cumulative. So they add up over time and, and they can start to make a big impact when you kind of lump them all together. You know, I could I could go on and on and on, to be honest. There's, there's quite a long list, you know, uh, lowering the blinds and the curtains at night to keep the warmth in, using shades to keep out heat in summer, you know, hang drying your laundry. That's a really good habit to have and something that we used to do all the time, but probably not so much anymore. But if you are throwing things in the dryer, you can toss a towel in or one of those little wool dryer balls. That's actually gonna help the dryer run a shorter run and save some energy there. There's just tons of stuff you can do to start picking up those good energy habits. And even if you're adopting a few of them, you know, just kind of building on them over time. Yeah, I feel like that's the, that's the hard part about doing a habit because a lot of people are gonna listen to this and feel super motivated and then they're going to do it one time and then maybe twice but that's the interesting thing about habits is that you have to do it over and over and over again i hear something like it takes 21 days or 21 times to to form our habit i don't know how true that is but the takeaway is it's not one or two times no it's it's hard to change habits to make them good the best thing we can do is just to encourage people and and to let them know what the options are and hope they adopt them so we've established that changing habits or changing bad habits or forming new good ones can be something that's hard to do. And asking residents to change habits can even be more difficult. I mean, if someone tells me, turn off the water when I'm washing my hands, I, I might, if it's something I really care about. But in the end, I might be asking what's, what's in it for me? What's my motivation to do that? Exactly. And I think anytime we're asking residents to do th something, we have to we have to be credible about it. So we have to demonstrate that we've already taken the responsibility and wherever we can, we're improving the energy efficiency, we're improving that affordability and comfort. And that gives us kind of the credibility to maybe ask residents to do what they can do as well. So that's a, a really important place to start. It's also important to remember the resident perspective. So like you said, what's my motivation? They won't do it if it's hard. They won't do it if it's expensive. And they're not going to do it if it's going to impact their comfort or convenience. So when we talk about changing habits, we have to really think about it. Okay, why aren't they already doing this? What barriers are preventing them from doing this? What's making it hard? Or what's making it expensive? Or what's making it inconvenient? And can we change those things? Can we change that math so that it's something more desirable that they actually want to do? I really like the, the angle of having credibility first before you ask for residents to change their habits. I feel like, especially when you're asking someone for something like this, first impressions might, might play a role. So if the resident has this picture of the housing manager or whoever is asking that, oh, I mean, why should I care when you haven't done all these things? Then that might be blocking 
the path to changing that residence or the residence behavior, taking the steps on your end and then reaching out from a position of credibility. I, I really like that approach. There's a really good book actually by Chip and Dan Heath. It's called Made to Stick. And they have this success model for communications. And one of the principles of successful communications is that credibility piece. It's important that you not only be credible, but that other people know that you're credible. As much as you might be doing really good work on the back end, kind of invisibly behind the scenes, it's important to make sure that the residents can see that as well and that those stories get out. Because when it does come to ask the residents to now be involved and to do their part, as it were, you have that credibility, you have that platform. Okay. So if I were a housing manager or asset manager for an Indigenous community, where do you think I should start if I want to work with residents to reduce the energy use? Yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to hammer on the credibility bit again. <laughs> so the first place to start is to is to do it. So anything that is within your sphere of control, those one-time actions, the default settings and the maintenance best practices, take on that responsibility and just make it part of your standard practice. So that's the first place to start. And so once you've kind of taken care of your own home, as it were, then you can start focusing on those bigger impact actions that residents can engage in. So again, starting with the one-time actions, making sure that every time something is replaced in their building, be it you know an appliance or a computer, that you're replacing it with something that's more energy efficient, or at least you've considered the most cost-effective energy efficient option. And then programming the default settings, making sure that that's kind of what residents are coming into when they first move into the homes and then helping them understand how to program it or how to change it when you hand over the keys if they do need to modify it for whatever reason they can but chances are they won't and then setting up a semi-annual maintenance program so just like a car tune-up this is the list of things that they check um, every fall and every spring to kind of get ready for the the heating season or the cooling season you can help them with this repair if you'd like. I, I, it's really ideal if you can. Say you have to do smoke detector tests twice a year. When you go in to do the smoke detector test, take everything you need to do spot repairs like leaky taps or um, replacing the furnace filter, those sorts of things. Just have it in your truck. And then while you're there, you can leave an extra furnace filter, remind them to replace it again in three months. Just that little prompt of coming in and kind of checking off a bunch of things at one time not only is it going to make the residents happier, it's going to make the homes run better, it's going to make the appliances and equipment last longer, and it's going to help the residents learn too. And when they're responsible for their own home, they'll know what to do. And so much of this knowledge can be lost if we don't have the opportunity to learn this from our parents. And you may find that after a while it gets easier because the residents are already on top of it. They've watched you fix the seal on the tap three times. They'll be taking that responsibility on themselves to fix the tap and just taking that pride that their home is running really well. Yeah, that, that, that's actually a really good, good strategy, kind of showing and not telling. I think it actually ties back into the credibility piece that you said when you said, you know, you can be credible, but you want people to know that you're credible coming in, checking off these items on the list, doing a bunch of things at once and prompting the residents to do that is a way to show them that, oh, the person in charge is credible and I can I can take their advice, I can take their word when it comes to matters on the house or energy efficiency tactics. And I mean, when you're doing your fall winterization, maybe it's taking longer. Maybe you have to spend a bit more time at each home. But I think it's going to save you time and effort in the long run because you're not going to get called back all those different times for all those different trouble calls if you're 
if you're already prepared and, and you can do the, the maintenance on the spot when you're there. And I feel like this is something that gets lost because you're going through all the houses doing your, let's say you're doing your winterization and this is something maybe you've blocked off a day to do it, you're going to do 50 houses. It's more efficient to do it that way at that time than for you to get called back in the future to two houses today, one house tomorrow, another two houses the day after. I absolutely agree when you say it's important to spend that extra little time up front because it's an investment and it's going to pay itself over many times in the future. I think it's important to recognize too that you know housing departments in general they might be pretty stretched your maintenance staff might be pretty stretched so this is aspirational i will say that that this is ideal and the more that you can kind of work and build towards this the easier the maintenance is going to be over time yeah don't if you're listening and thinking oh my god there's so much work to do we're already pretty stretched like Dara said all of this does not have to happen in a day or a season even it takes time to get to these levels of organization but with the consistent steady intentional practice it's it's somewhere every housing management system can get to so i believe some of this is covered under the energy conservation assistant program which you mentioned earlier that you're going to tell us more about and also via another program called the indigenous communities conservation programs can you tell us more about what those are about yeah absolutely so the energy conservation assistance program called ecap and then Indigenous Communities Conservation Program, that's ICCP. Those programs are run jointly uh, with BC Hydro and Fortis BC. Those are the two main utilities in British Columbia. And so the ECAP program is for low-income households. And what they do is you can sign up and they'll come in and they'll do direct installs of energy efficient equipment. So there'll be LED lights and low-flow shower heads and aerators for your taps. They may even uh, put a an automated sensor on your bathroom fan. This is really great because they just come in with the equipment and they install it. And at the same time, they do a home energy assessment and they prepare a list of recommendations for energy efficiency improvements. So the ECAP program is available to the public. It's also available to indigenous communities and it's a bit different there in that you don't have to apply separately. There's no income qualification required. You just sign up homes to be part of the ECAP program, and then they'll come out and they'll provide the equipment and, and do those home assessments for you. So, of course, it's suspended right now with COVID, but we're hopeful that the ECAP program will be coming back online fairly soon. The ICCP program, the Indigenous Communities Conservation Program, same idea, but in this one it's set up a little bit differently so that it's actually Indigenous communities that receive training and the equipment and they actually go into the homes and do those direct installs themselves. So it's not some outsider coming from Vancouver, there'll be a little bit of training so that uh, your own community members can, can go in and do this work. So it's a little bit of capacity building. There's some financial support to have that person who's coordinating, signing up those homes as well as doing the direct installs. So that's a really nice way to kind of get access to the ECAP program and all of the resources through that, but also have some capacity building in your own community. And for either one of these programs, if you're interested in signing up, you can go to betterhomesbc.ca slash indigenous support. And I'll say that again, because it's a big one. <laughs> so betterhomesbc.ca slash indigenous support. You can learn more about the ECAP program or the ICCP program, figure out which one is best for you. And I really do encourage you to get in contact with uh, the program sponsors and uh, talk with them directly about what you're looking for in your community. The ECAP and ICCP sound like amazing programs and really good places to start, but I'm sure there are housing managers listening right now to thinking to themselves, that's good, but I want to do more. 
what are some other tools available to, to them to get their residents to start to adopt these energy efficient behaviors that we're looking for? This is, this is actually primarily the work I do, developing programs, sustainability programs, energy efficiency programs for clients. The number one thing I want folks to keep in mind is that information does not equal action. So whatever you do, don't send out a memo or a flyer. <laughs> it won't work. It'll be frustrating for everybody involved. There's some really good tools and programs and resources available to you online for this sort of thing. Um, the process that I use, um, or I usually start with, is something called social marketing and all social marketing is, is using marketing tools, sales tools, to support pro-social behavior. And pro-social behavior sounds a bit evil and intimidating, maybe. <laughs> but really, it's about adopting healthier behavior. So social marketing campaigns you might be familiar with would be like the stop smoking campaigns or wearing a seatbelt campaigns. Some people might remember the body break that was a federal program promoting physical fitness. So those are all examples of social marketing campaigns. Here in Canada, we have our own David Mackenzie Moore, and he developed a, a program called Community-Based Social Marketing, which is all about engaging communities to support these positive uh, pro-social behaviors, mostly around waste and recycling. But he does a really great job of laying out how you can approach changing behavior or getting a whole community to adopt a new set of behaviors or good habits, essentially. This is what I do, so I'm totally a bit nerdy about this, but uh, there's <laughs> BJ Fogg has a, something called the Fogg Behavioral Model, which is a really nice way to explain it. So it's basically the behavior equals the motivation times the ability times the prompt. So motivation is what we we're talking about before. So, you know, is it fun? Is it new and exciting? Does it help me save money? Like, what's my motivation? So if you can improve the motivation in that equation, you're more likely to get the behavior you want. The other thing that you can focus on is people's ability to do it. And so David Mackenzie Moore calls this addressing the barriers to participation, but what can you do to make it easier for people to do the thing? So for example, I really wanna get rid of this fridge that is in my basement. It's plugged in, it keeps, you know, I plug it, it keeps getting plugged back in use. I just wanna get rid of it. Well, what can you do there? You can have things like a rebate program you get money back for turning in an old or outdated fridge. You could have some sort of a white goods collection program. So you're actually coming out and helping people get that fridge out of their basements. Those are all ways to address some of the barriers that people have to not engaging in the behavior in the first place. So that's a really good place to start is just kind of addressing that. And it, the barriers can be things like money. How much does it cost? It can be knowledge, information, or it can be the time and effort to actually do the thing. So looking at, you know, how can we remove those barriers and make it easier for people to do the activity in the first place? And then if you have high motivation and you've made it easy to do, then all you have to do is have a little reminder. And that's the prompt or the trigger or the, the little information campaign that you run that, that tips people over and reminds them to do the thing. A prompt or reminder, I mean, uh, if you've been in a community center or a mall, you've probably seen them, the little turn off the light switch on the switch on the way out the door. Little things like that, little prompts and reminders in the place and time that people would actually engage in the behavior, those can be really powerful. You're not going to go and install a turn off the lights reminder in somebody's home, um, but there are other things that you can do like that to, to kind of give them that little trigger, that little reminder to weatherize their home in the fall or, you know, lower those blinds in summer to keep the heat out, those sorts of things. 
again, you know, this is this is what I do. So I'm, I'm probably getting into more detail than is necessary. But um, again, you know, checking out that community based social marketing resource, um, or, you know, just really sitting down and thinking about, okay, what is the specific behavior that I want to influence? What's the good habit I want to support people to have? And why aren't residents doing it already? That's going to get you 50% of the way to addressing it in a way that residents are going to be on board with as well. An example that's coming to mind, and we actually spoke about it earlier in this episode, was the idea of the housing manager coming into the resident's home, maybe during the winter, during their winterization, leaving a filter or two, kind of showing them the ropes on how to do it. Those are examples, it sounds like to me, of increasing their the resident's ability to, to perform these actions or reducing the barrier, to use the technical term that David Mackenzie Moore used. I think to me personally, it sounds pretty spot on to take that route because it just seems like you're addressing so many issues with one action. I think it's challenging for housing managers. So as I say, you know, focus on the things that you have control over directly first. There are some things that you can adopt that are relatively simple. You're probably already doing them anyway. So just looking at them with a bit of an energy efficiency lens and adding in some of those reminders or some of those things that we talked about. So for example, you know, if you're doing a new resident orientation, people, when they move into a new house, they're already excited. Their motivation is high. They don't have bad habits yet. So it's easy to form good habits. Anytime we have a big change in our life, it's easier to form good habits or new habits. Um, don't give them a manual. They aren't going to read the manual. We never read the manual. We all know this. So, <laughs> you know, when you're doing that walkthrough, explain the features of the home. Um, explain how the heating system works show them how to replace the filter, pull it out for them, you know, get them to pull it out, you know, explain how the ventilation works, why you have to turn on the bathroom fan, why you have to use the fume hood. They won't remember everything, but it's going to make it easier for them later on when you send a reminder in the fall to winterize their home, for example. So you're kind of priming them, getting them ready for those really good, positive, energy efficient behaviors. Even something as simple as showing them how to access their My Hydro electricity account or their Fortis BC online account. There's a ton of good resources in there. Um, there's even like some gamification things. People can win money back on their energy bills. And evidence shows that just being aware of how much energy we're using in our homes can actually help us to reduce our energy use by as much as 10%. So of course the motivation doesn't last forever. <laughs> It has to be refreshed from time to time, but it, it, they'll know that every time they feel that pain point from a high energy bill, okay, I'm logging into my myhydro.com, what's going on here? And then they're going to be re-motivated to kind of bring that down. So again, making it easy and, and giving them the resources so they can tackle it themselves when they're ready to. Yeah, I think the examples you just gave, new resident orientation, showing residents how to log into the MyHydro and Fortis BC accounts. I think those are great examples of opportunities to lay the groundwork for residents to start practicing those habits we want to see. Moving on to another part of the model that you that you mentioned earlier, that behavior is motivation times ability times prompt. That prompt part, I'm curious as to some examples or recommendations for these. What could those look like? Yeah, so prompts or reminders, those work well for those really easy behaviors or easy activities that are, you know, people are pretty motivated to do already. And so what does that look like for a housing manager? Well, uh, I'm a big fan of, again, that fall and that spring reminder to, to weatherize our house for the upcoming season. You know, maybe it's uh, something that goes out through an electronic newsletter or a flyer that you distribute. Maybe it goes up on your website once a year, whatever communication pathways you normally use. 
if you have a communications department, you can collaborate with them to kind of get that messaging out. Even scheduling a little reminder or prompt every month, for example, that goes out in your newsletter. Have your little eco corner or your good green habits corner. That can be a way to kind of seed those ideas. And then, you know, if you want to get a little bit more into people's homes and be a little bit more proactive, doing something like printing little stickers for your washing machines describes, you know, how to get the stains out, when to use the hot water setting if it's already set to the default cold, and then simple maintenance best practices, things like we often get a lot of complaints about mold building up in the seal. You know, if you've got an energy efficient front loading washing machine, you put a little uh, hook on the front of the washing machine with a towel that hangs off it and a reminder to wipe the seal after every use. It's a really simple thing to hang in there anyway. You know, you've removed all the barriers, you've made it super easy for people to do. You're not gonna get those complaints about mold in the seals. You're not gonna get the smells that are associated with it. And your washing machine is gonna last longer. Looking for those little things where you can just do something really simple that's going to encourage people to engage in that positive behavior. And I will add a caveat here. Again, we have to be careful of asking people to do things that might seem too intrusive. One example I often give is something like a shower timer. So a shower timer is a great idea, right? Shorter showers, it's a good reminder. We shouldn't be spending half an hour in there, right? You're saving hot water and saving hot water has a big impact. But this is a really personal thing. So I would not install shower timers and tell people to use them. That would, that would go poorly. Um, but give people the opportunity to opt in that, to that sort of behavior. You can talk about it, but maybe don't be too aggressive with that. Allow them to come to you as opposed to you going to them. Just something to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I imagine, I mean, I'm just looking at it from my perspective. It would suck if my shower just went off mid-shower, soap in my eye. I would be sending in a very angry memo for sure. If you've ever been to the pool and they have those push timers on the showers, everybody knows how frustrating that is. So yeah. <laughs> just be thoughtful about the things that you're asking residents to do. So we've gone over quite a bit. I think when we go into topics in depth like this, there, there are usually a few big takeaways or a few items that really contain the crux of the matter. What would you say the big takeaways are when it comes to starting work with residents to save energy? So the first part is to prioritize those one-time actions and defaults. It's tricky sometimes to get the timing because they might only happen, as you say, once every 15 years. But those are the kind of one-time actions that you will benefit from over a longer period of time. So those are the ones that you want to influence first. And we've talked a lot about this already, but I will remind folks that number two, the biggest thing you can do is to be credible and to make sure that you're doing what you can first before you're asking the residents to do things. And then when you do ask the residents to do things, just remember that anything that's difficult or reduces comfort or increases cost is not going to succeed. So that gets to number three. And if you are developing a program to improve energy efficiency habits in your community, think about the specific habits that you want to influence and how people do them or why they aren't already doing them. And then address those pain points, those barriers that they have. And then, of course, remember, information does not equal action. No memos, people. No memos. Um, <laughs> making it easier for residents to do the thing. And then, you know, definitely add motivation. Talk about why it's important. But don't expect motivation to carry you through. You really do have to address those underlying barriers. And then finally, we can't really cover everything there is to know in this podcast. So uh, I'm a big fan of Professor Google. You know, find out what others have been doing, what works, what didn't work. Borrow liberally, provide credit where credit is due, but you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's tons of good resources and examples out there you can draw from. You can adapt them and make them your own and make them make sense for your community. So 
don't worry about starting from scratch go out there find what's already working and then make it your own yeah and there's a lot out there that's already working your research can result in you finding a template of some sorts or something that shows that okay 45 percent, 60 percent of the work is already done the remaining 40 percent, you just have to add your own flavor on top of it or tailor it a little bit to fit your situation go find inspiration bring it back make it your own Big, big thanks to Darla for taking us through this topic so expertly today. I found that I learned a lot and I'm sure you folks listening on the line are right in the same boat. You took away a few things that you're going to be able to implement right away in your communities to start getting our residents to that place that we want them to be. Yeah, thanks, Tammy. You can tell this is something I'm really passionate about. So very happy to be able to share it with folks today. And of course, to you, our listeners, for taking the time out of what I'm sure is your busy day to learn more about supporting your residents and adopting energy efficient habits. We hope you found this helpful and perhaps have a few new ideas to bring to your work. For more information on the Home Energy Save program or to download the next podcast in this series, please visit Fraser Basin Council's website and the First Nations Home Energy Save webpage. You'll find there a companion resource for this podcast, along with links to incentive programs and resources available to Indigenous communities in British Columbia. You can also sign up for their newsletter to learn about new training opportunities and support programs. This podcast has been developed by SES Consulting as part of the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Safe program. The program is sponsored by the Province of British Columbia, BC Hydro, Fortis BC, and the Real Estate Foundation of British Columbia. Production by Aaron Trazo of Bird Media.